0: Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. Hey everybody, so good to be with you again today. We're coming to you all the way from a rooftop here in our Sandton City Center. And it's so good to be with you today as we move into part two of our current series called Finding Faith. We are talking about the origin of all things. We're talking about the existence of something. We're talking about the existence of a creator, a God. And we are looking at some of the big questions that people have, even objections that people have against the faith. Last week, we spoke about the existence of something. We spoke about the fact that there is something here rather than nothing. And why? Why are we here? Why is anything here rather than nothing? We looked at some of the possibilities as to how reality and creation and everything that we see in the natural world could have come to be here. And we concluded that it is quite rational and even reasonable to believe in the existence of a creator, an intelligent designer, a God that put all things into being. This is in contradiction with much of the way that our world views things right now, which has been overtaken by the philosophies of naturalism. And people have come to believe that everything just came to be in and of itself through naturalism and therefore we don't really have an answer where everything came from, but we've concluded from the outset that it definitely couldn't be God. This is a terrible way to reason scientifically rather than being open-ended and exploring the evidence and inferring from the evidence or from the effects what the cause may be, we already conclude that it definitely couldn't be a God. This reminds me of, or reminded me of a time that my family and I were playing 30 seconds together. If you've ever played 30 seconds with your family, you'll know just how dangerous a pursuit it is. Uh, families have been torn apart, uh, you know, marriages have been ruined and friends have been lost forever in the process of playing 30 seconds. And so there was this one occasion where I was playing 30 seconds with my family and my parents were notoriously bad at playing 30 seconds. Uh, and on one occasion, my dad gave a clue and his clue was a cricketer. That was it. He gave no more information and my mom had to decipher from that one single clue which possible cricketer on planet Earth my dad could have been referring to. But on another occasion, my mom accidentally saw the card before the question was asked. And when she saw the card, she read one of the the answers on it was Adam and Eve. And so she had already decided that as soon as a biblical question gets asked, she was going to give the answer Adam and Eve. And so the question that my dad asked wasn't actually the one that she saw the answer for on the card. The question my dad asked was who built the ark? My mom immediately switched into that's a Bible question. I know the answer. And she even pretended to think in her worst acting kind of face, she said, "Mm, it was Adam and Eve. And my my dad and all of us looked at her and thought, mom, you've read the Bible for so many years. How could you possibly think Adam and Eve built the ark? My dad asked the question again. He said, the ark, who built the ark? And my mom responded again, "Mm, Adam and Eve. And this just shows you what happens When you've concluded the answer before you've listened to the question, you end up ruling out all the possibilities and sticking with your preconceived idea. But if we're going to uh, be searchers and lovers of truth, we must examine the evidence that is before us. And so last week, we looked at the fact that the the evidence shows that there is a creator and we can infer some things about him uh, from what, from who we are, from what we are, and from what we see in nature. And one of those things is the fact that that we have a general understanding, all of humanity has a general understanding of right and wrong, that some things are bad and some things are good. There's some sort of a moral law, or as C.S. Lewis called it, the law of nature, that is quite uniform across the generations and across all of this, the, the civilizations that we have had in history and even today they are they may have some small differences but in general we still hold fast to certain things being evidently false and evidently true or evidently bad and evidently good and so that means that if we have a sense of morality that whoever created us must be moral and that also means that he has to be good because if he wasn't good he wouldn't have given us a moral law to live by so why then in today's message I want to talk about this why then is there evil in the world Why, if there is a good God and if He is moral and He is caring, why does evil exist? That's what we want to talk about today in this message entitled, The Presence of Evil. Here's the key objection that people have. If God is a loving, caring, moral God, why do evil and suffering exist in the world? Or to put it differently, since evil and suffering exist, a loving God cannot. And this is, as a pastor, uh, an objection that I have heard many times in my life, why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow the seemingly innocent to suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people and these kinds of reasons? Why did this have to happen to me in my own life? I've been through my own tragedies, my own moments and seasons of difficulty and and heartache and brokenness, everything from from, uh, longing and, and struggling to have kids, to broken relationships, to even the death of my dad. Last year, these are all questions that we, you know, these events raise the questions. Why does God allow these things to happen? Why do we hear the stories of the pandemic? People that are sick, people that are dying right now. Our world is facing a crisis and many are suffering in many different ways. And the question is, if God is loving, why does he allow it? Epicurus, the Greek philosopher said, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot or he can but does not want to. If he wants to, but cannot, he is impotent. If he can and does not want to, he is wicked. But if he both can and wants to abolish evil, then how come evil exists in the world? How do we answer the critics when they bring these allegations before us? Well, the first mistake that an atheist can make in arguing against the existence of God is claiming that there is something called evil that something could be bad essentially what atheists believe is that the universe came into being through the equation of space plus time plus chance in other words it's completely random that in a certain moment in space and time the elements and everything just aligned in such a way that everything could come into being and so it's purely random and by chance and that also means it's amoral There was no creator that is good, that set forth a moral law and a a sense of goodness. Something's being right and just and true. It just happened by chance. And so in essence, there isn't anything like good and bad in the world. The moment you say that something is evil, you're also saying thereby that something must be good. And the moment that you say that there is something good, you're positing that there must be a moral law by which we determine the difference between what is good and what is evil. And if there is a moral law, there has to be a source of the moral law. There has to be a moral law giver or one that wrote those those laws into the heart and the minds of human beings into humankind. And so when you say that there is evil, you automatically say there's moral law and therefore there must be a moral law giver. The resulting equation looks like this. Objective morals exist only if God exists objective morals exist therefore God exists some atheists would say that morality is purely the result of an evolutionary process for survival it's how society learned to survive because everybody just ran around uh, stealing from each other and murdering one another then society would be rooted out within time but if we were evolving away from evil then why does it still exist in the world if this was an evolutionary process of, of many 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 years why are we still in the position where it actually seems that the world is getting worse and not better it would have evolution would have then ruled out the need for moral laws because we all would have adopted it and essentially it would have become some, somewhat impossible for us to commit evil or to practice evil but all across the globe humans tend to live by some moral code or at the very least try to live by some moral code they agree that some things are wrong and some things are right reminded me of a time I traveled up to Botswana middle of nowhere we picked a spot on the map a friend of mine and I we were 19 years old we just wanted to go share the gospel with some people and so we just drove up into Botswana we found a little town called Palapi Palapi doesn't even have proper roads you know houses are just built at random and it's a very small town dusty little town in the middle of Botswana and we went there and on the Saturday, we went through to a Shabeen. For those of you watching from overseas, that is like a local pub uh, where the locals hang out. And we went into one of those Shabins. It was loud music and almost everybody was drunk um, in that Shabeen, but we had a great time. We hung out with them, we spoke to them and we started talking to them about the reality of God. And as we were talking to them at one point, it's almost as if the presence of God started to speak to them and God, God started to take a hold of them and, and they wanted to hear more but they felt guilty in that moment. All of a sudden they felt ashamed and they said to us, please, we wanna hear more of what you have to say, but we're drunk right now. Will you come back tomorrow when we're sober and share with us because we know what you're saying is true. And so we went back the next day, we met with them outside in that area, outside the Shabeen, they were sober and many of them received Jesus that day, just simply because they were convicted in their hearts that we know that this is not how we should be living and so no matter where you go in the world you encounter that people know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong Hebrews 8 verse 10 says God has put his laws in our hearts and minds Romans 1 verse 18 to 19 says what can be known about God is plain to everyone because God has shown it to them in what he has created in everything we see around us we can begin to understand there is a God and therefore we know that there is right and there is wrong C.S. Lewis said I know that some people have the idea say sorry, I know that some people say the idea of the law of nature, which is his moral law, what he calls the moral law or decent behavior known to all men is unsound because different civilizations in different ages have had quite different moralities. But this is not true. There have been differences between their moralities, but these have never amounted to anything like a total difference. If anyone will take the trouble to compare the moral teaching of, say, the ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, Hindus, Chinese, Greeks, and Romans, what will really strike him is how very like they are to each other and to our own. So why does evil exist in the world? Well, I want to look at three quick reasons as to why evil exists. And the first one is because people choose evil. People choose to commit evil. When God created mankind, humankind, He looked at us and said, it is good. And in that time, humanity did not know sin. There was innocence. We had never betrayed God. We'd never broken away from that law of nature or from what God had put in our hearts. But we did have the potential to choose evil or to to create evil through our actions. Why did God give us that potential? Why did He not simply just say, all human beings do not have the ability to be disobedient to a moral conscience or to the law of God? To the truth of God they would just walk in perfect obedience at all times why did God create us with that potential well it's like a pendulum the more we have potential for evil that potential is the equation is is that we have the exact opposite potential for good for love so yes we have this much potential for hatred but it's because God created us with this amount of potential for good and for love And the reason why there has to be a pendulum where you have to have the potential for one in order to have the other is because love cannot be love if you do not have the ability to hate obedience is not obedience if it is impossible for you to disobey because it means that you are then simply a robot and not somebody who has a choice i have kids and i love my kids and my kids love me i hope i I believe they do but they don't always obey me. And so it's difficult. But if God gave me the option and said, I wanna give you kids and I'm gonna just create them like robots. They'll love you when you tell them to love you. They'll obey you when you tell them to obey you and they will have no free will. I would say, no God, I'd rather help them learn to obey, but have their love for me be true, be a choice, be something genuine. And in the same way, when God created you and I, he didn't wanna create robots. He gave us free will because it is necessary to have free will in order to have true love. And that's what God wanted with us. He wanted us to be able to have a true relationship with him. This is so important. And so God gave humankind free will. Now, if I give you something, if I've given you a gift, for example, let's say I gave you 10,000 rand today and I said, that's a gift. It's yours. Use it as you will. And you go out to the store and you decide you want to get a brand new TV. And the moment you're about to purchase that TV, I step in and I say, sorry, you can't buy the TV, you have to buy something else. Have I really given you the freedom or did I just give you the illusion of freedom? No, God gave us free will. He gave us a choice. And that means that he cannot intervene every single time people use the freedom that he has given them to choose something that is evil. It doesn't mean that those evil acts go unnoticed or that there won't be a reckoning for those that don't ask for forgiveness from God for those actions. But it just means that God cannot stop every person that desires in their hearts to do evil because he has given them free will. And that's why people are able to do those things. In Acts 17, verse 30 to 31, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this man, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, Jesus. So there will be a reckoning for all that haven't received the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus in this life. And it will be brought to us in that time of judgment at the end of all things. Now, we often want those that have robbed us, hurt us, or stolen from us to be judged. Like, you know, God judge them, God deal with them, God sort them out. But then when it comes to our own faults and mistakes and sins, we want grace. So we often want grace for ourselves and judgment for others. But what the gospel does is that God forgives us so that we can also forgive others. Jesus says, Love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Be kind to those that insult you. This is a revolutionary idea of love in our world. So people choose evil. That's why it exists. The second reason is because Satan is evil. Now, some people don't believe in the existence of Satan or even a supernatural world in general. Even though we did go some way to proving that existence or the existence of a supernatural creator and why it's rational to believe in last week. However, the Bible is fairly clear on the existence of Satan. He's described as the enemy of mankind in Genesis 3.15, the father of lies in John 8.44, the accuser in Revelation 12.10. The very name Satan means adversary. In other words, he is dead set against humanity. He's here to kill, to steal, and to destroy. One man we see in the Bible that was attacked by Satan was a man called Job. Job is probably one of the greatest commentaries in all of ancient literature on the subject of suffering. And it's one of the oldest books in all of the Bible. And we see the role that Satan played in attacking Job. As Satan comes before God, God says, have you considered Job this this man who is blameless before me and who worships me? And Satan accuses him because that's his job description. And he says, well, of course he worships you. Look at how you've blessed him, but take those blessings away and he will no longer worship you. And God, remove, therefore, in order to to prove and to deepen, God had a purpose in doing this. Removes some of that protection and allows the enemy a certain scope within which he could bring this attack against Job. And in the process, Job suffers loss. He suffers the loss of his wealth, his health, and some of his family. And naturally, Job grapples with the questions, "Why God?" Just like all of us have. But Job doesn't give us any easy answers as he goes through this process. Sometimes it's very unsatisfying to the rationality in us because we believe if you do good things, you get good things. If you do bad things, you get bad things. But then it doesn't always work that way. Job was blameless and yet he suffered in many instances. But again, in this, we prove our inner desire for justice. We want it to be right. That's If we see a person that we claim to be good not suffer or suffer, we say, that's not right. He's a good person. He's a, it's a good man. That's a good woman. She shouldn't suffer. He shouldn't suffer. Why does it have to happen to them? In other words, we've already betrayed our inner sense of morality that those that do bad in some way deserve justice. And, and those that haven't don't. But in fact, this is how intrigue is created. And I'll come back to that, that idea in a moment. Because ultimately, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. All of us actually would deserve judgment if it wasn't for the fact that Jesus took that judgment upon himself. And so we're all equally guilty, but God's grace is for everybody. But intrigue is created by this inner sense of justice that we long for. Because when a movie starts or a story starts, it normally starts with everything being in order. And then pretty soon after the movie has begun, everything that was idyllic and picturesque and in order gets plunged into chaos. There's a moment of chaos. And from that moment on, We keep watching the movie because we want to see chaos returned to order. This is how intrigue is created by the movement between the ordered and the chaotic worlds. We want things to be in order. We desire justice deep inside of us. Have you ever watched a movie that doesn't quite get there? That ends kind of with everything hanging in the air and it's not like neatly wrapped up and tied with a bow? It frustrates us because we long for justice and finality in that sense. People often say, well, I can't believe in a God that would do this because they say, I wouldn't do it. Well, in some senses, what you're doing is that you're making yourself the ultimate authority on morality. You're making your views the ultimate views on morality. Is it possible, however, that even when we don't understand why certain things happen, that God, who is the author of morality, has a better developed sense of what is right and what is wrong the philosopher Peter Crift says Job is a mystery a mystery satisfies something in us but not our reason the rationalist is repelled by Job as Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by Job but something deeper in us is satisfied by Job and is nourished and puts iron in your blood why did God allow these things to happen to Job why does God allow these things to happen to us Job wrestles with this. He receives the religious and the moralistic answer from his friends. They say, you had to have done something to deserve this. That's what a lot of people hear. You had to deserve this. You did something. He also gets the the irreligious and the nihilistic response, which is, no, there is no reason. Everything just happens, and you just have to deal with it. Both of those are wrong. Because even though we don't always know why we suffer, Romans 8.28 says that there is always a purpose that God works in the suffering. Romans 8.28 says we know that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So God is able to take suffering and bring meaning into it. He's able to connect it to our calling and our purpose. Our problem is that in the moment, we just don't see that. We don't understand why. We only experience the pain of the moment without the perspective of eternity. But if we understood like, like a lion caught in a trap and a ranger coming along and the ranger m- may have to shut that trap even tighter, causing the lion pain in order to set him free. The lion just feels pain and thinks the ranger is evil. But the ranger knows that what he's doing is saving the lion's life. And in the same way, when we suffer pain, we don't always know why, but what we can trust in, is that God would use those moments of pain to liberate us, to develop us, and to cause our character to be strengthened. The Bible actually tells us this in James 1, verse 2 to 4. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, verse 3 to 5 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's what we have. We have hope. And God cares more about our character than just about our temporary comfort. Dentists, athletic coaches, teachers, and parents know very well that sometimes in order to be good doesn't equal the same as to be kind. Sometimes you Have to be unkind in the moment in order to be good long term as you're training and teaching your children. God is the one who initiates the discussion about Job. And even when the enemy attacks, God uses those attacks to fulfill his purpose and to benefit us. Tim Keller says God allows evil just enough space to defeat itself. So God allows Satan the scope, but sets a limit on it. And this deepens Job's love for God, because now Job's love for God is not based on the benefits and the blessings and all the great things that God had given him, but on who God is himself. He is now developing a deeper personal relationship with God through those moments of pain. The truth is that more people have found God during times of suffering than those that have walked away from him. C.S. Lewis says we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. At the end of the book of Job, not only does Job have double in wealth what he had at the beginning, but his relationship with God is stronger than ever before. He says this, he says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He was more convinced of God's goodness than ever before. And so everything that the enemy might bring against your life, even the attacks you feel he has brought against you right now, God will turn to good. He turns it back on itself. And that is the goodness and the grace of God. So the second reason why we experience these things is because Satan is evil. The final one that I want to talk about today is the fact that we live in a broken world. The book of Romans tells us that all of creation is subject to futility and corruption. And we experience that brokenness. We live within broken systems administered by broken people uh, in the context of a broken world. So the question is, where is God in this brokenness? Why doesn't he just do something about it? And the answer is, the truth is, he did. He didn't just sit apathetically far away in heaven somewhere. He sent His Son to become incarnate, to take on flesh and bone, to be born into this world of pain and suffering, to experience the same sorrows and hardships and griefs that we do. This is what Jesus did. It's the beauty of the incarnation. It was God's answer. He entered our broken system and experienced our pain firsthand. Listen how Isaiah 53 verse 2 describes this. It says, For He grew up before Him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him. This is talking about Jesus. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is the wounded healer. God entered our pain. And this is why when we enter moments of pain, we find him there. He is there in the pain and he is compassionate. He is a compassionate high priest. He cares about you. He understands what you're suffering. Psalm 34, 18 says, God is near to the broken hearted. Jesus is the true Job. He is the one who was betrayed and, and, uh, and, and ridiculed by his friends and who suffered everything on our behalf. But in what Jesus did, he defeated death. And that includes every form of death. No matter what you're suffering in this world right now, God will put it right in the ultimate sense. We are never defeated by the death or the pain or the suffering in our world we always have hope Romans 8:18 8, says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory which shall be revealed in us the glory of what God is doing in you right now far outweighs anything you may be suffering the worst pain You can experience is not even a blip compared to the glory that is to be revealed. And the day will ultimately come as God puts all things right. Remember, we're, we're not at the end of the book yet. The Bible has still predicted and prophesied what will take place. And there will come a time where God will put an end to suffering and an end to sorrow and an end to pain. Where he will wipe away every tear. Where death shall be no more. Where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain but us living in the glory of God. And in the meantime, suffering helps. It helps us realize that a perfect pain-free life is not the key to a satisfied life and that Jesus is truly all that we need. You see, the answer to our suffering is not an answer at all, but it is the answerer. It is Jesus himself. When Job questioned God, God showed up in one moment in that in that passage in that story and God spoke to Job and he said I'm going to gird you like a man now you I'm going to question you you've asking me a lot of questions now I'm going to ask you a question and in essence he takes a few chapters to ask this question but he says to Job hey Job who is God is it me or is it you were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth were you there when I put all things into being can you explain to me how these things work and Job has no answer and strangely it causes Job to be satisfied. The recognition that you are not God, but that God is God. When you surrender to that, it brings peace into your life. And it did for Job. He is satisfied because he sees God. God didn't give him some religious answer. He just shows himself. And that's what satisfies him and deepens his love and trust in God. Not once, not once. In all of what Job had to say or in what God had to say to Job, did he mention Job's sin? He wasn't suffering as punishment. And when you're in Christ, God doesn't punish you because he has already punished Christ. He can't punish or try the same crime twice. That's double jeopardy. No, Christ has already taken the punishment. But when we suffer, we don't know the answers, but we can trust in God And that he will work all things together for good. So God doesn't always offer us an answer for our pain. And I can't offer you an answer for your pain today necessarily. But he always offers us his presence. And ultimately it is the presence of God that satisfies us. That satisfies us. I can't tell you the exact reason why you're suffering today. If you are. But I can tell you that God cares about you and that the best is yet to come because he will work all things together for good. I'm gonna conclude with this statement, this quote by John Stotts, one of my favorite ones, and I've mentioned it before, but this was penned during a time of personal suffering in John Stotts' life. And he wrote this, he said, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could you worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different ancient Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I've had to turn away. And in in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. God knows pain and he loves you. And so you can trust in him. If you're suffering today, I wanna pray for you. I believe God is the comforter, the Holy Spirit is the comforter and the one who works on our behalf. Let's pray together today. Father, we just thank you right now I thank you for every person watching here, listening here. I thank you, God, that you see their hearts. You've seen their tears. You've seen what they've been through. You know their suffering deep within them right now. You know the source of their suffering. God, we thank you that even when we don't have the answers, we can make a choice to trust in you, to believe in you, and to rest in you. I pray that every person that is suffering today will experience comfort, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the peace that transcends all understanding, the joy of the Lord. We thank you, God, that you will work every single one of those situations to the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And that ultimately, God, we will be in a better place because of what we have been through and because of your grace. We trust in you today. We believe in you today. And we give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're praying for you. We're standing with you. No matter what you're going through, never give up. Keep going. The best is yet to come. We love you. We can't wait to see you again next Sunday. And uh, it's going to be an awesome time. We're going to talk about miracles next week. Uh, Can we believe in miracles? So look out for that and invite some people. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a great week. And we'll see you again next Sunday.